If you please stand uh, with me for the reading of God's word again. Your bulletins have uh, verse 8 as the starting point in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to be starting all the way back in verse 1, just to give us some context. And again, I want to just welcome everybody. Um, If you're visiting with us, I'd love to meet you as well. And uh, just to see how we can love you and serve you. But now as we turn our attention to God's word, Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them according to this child. And all who heard it wondered and what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We heard in our confession this morning that how we respond to the Lord how we respond to the sending of his son is a matter that can either be a stumbling block or, as we see in this passage, a matter that brings us great joy. So the question that we all should be asking ourselves as we come to a passage like this is, what brings you joy? Or do you even have joy? In our passage today, we read that there is good news which brings and gives cause for great joy. And during this Advent season, we've looked at the opening chapters of Luke. We focused our attention on what we're calling the songs of salvation. These songs have been filled with reasons to praise and glorify God for all that he is and all that he does. 
This morning, we are looking at a song of peace. Like Mary's song was a song of reversal, turning things upside down. Zechariah's song was a song of visitation in which the Lord visited us from on high. This song is a song that declares peace. And again, what is of greatest importance is how we respond to that news. Is it even important to our hearts? How do you respond to good news of great joy? How do you respond to the news that you have peace with God that he has made? How you respond to this determines whether or not you will actually enjoy that peace. In our passage this morning, we not only learn what's behind the news of of great joy, but we also see how we ought to respond to it. So the main idea for this morning is this. God sent his son so that you may rejoice in his peace to the glory of his name. God has sent his son so that you may rejoice in his peace to the glory of his name. And you may rejoice in the peace of God for two primary reasons. The first one is because of who was born. We can rejoice in God's peace because of who was born. And second, we can rejoice in God's peace because of his good pleasure. So first, the one who was born. The one who was born, we all know his name. His name is Jesus. He's the promised Savior who brings us peace. We're all familiar with the story. The angels appear to the shepherds. They experience great fear. The response of fear is typical for people who are visited by heavenly beings. Their holiness exposes mankind's sinfulness. We saw this same response of fear with Mary and Zechariah. But the angel speaks in a way to alleviate that fear, just as he did with Mary, just as he did with Zechariah. He tells them not to fear. And the reason is that he has come with good news. I bring you good news. This is the, f- the verb form of the word we get evangelized from. He's evangelizing them. So the angel is giving a gospel message. It is a gospel of great joy. When I was meditating on this text, the nature of this good news caught my attention. The construction is similar to Luke 4.43, where Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well. Jesus preaches there the good news of the kingdom of God. In Acts 8.35, Philip opens his mouth and beginning with his scripture told him the good news about Jesus. Philip gives the gospel of Jesus. And now, but in Luke 2, making this announcement, the angels are giving the gospel of great joy. This passage is so familiar to so many of us. And because we can become dulled to the wonder We should rest on this and consider the elements of this gospel presentation and see why it is a gospel of great joy. The first thing he mentions, of course, is that a birth has happened. The announcement of a birth, especially from an angel, fulfills expectations that reach all the way back to the fall in Eden. When God pronounced a curse on the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
An offspring or a seed is promised who will crush the serpent. And the crushing of that serpent not only will end his presence, but his power and his influence. That power and influence causes hostility and enmity. And then the enemies that Zechariah prophesied about being delivered from, they would now be eliminated. This promise of a seed is repeated and carried on through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they are told that in their offspring all of the earth would be blessed. That promise of a seed or the offspring continues through David in which God promises to raise up his offspring and establish his kingdom forever. This is the promised birth that was most anticipated as the prophets and psalms anticipated because this birth would bring peace. This birth, they said, has happened for you or to you. It is for their advantage that this birth has happened, not just for the shepherds, but to all the people, all who would hear. It's a birth that impacts every soul. This is good news for peace. The next part to notice in this proclamation is that Luke records the angels saying that this birth has happened today. In the ESV, it says this day. Now, today is not necessarily any more significant than that the birth happened on the day that they're giving the announcement. But Luke's use of this term speaks very often of fulfillment. In fact, its redundancy at times makes it stand out in these cases. Luke 4.21, for example, he said he began to say to them, this is Jesus in the synagogue, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus could have just said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus didn't, didn't need to tell them that today's the day he's talking to them, or today's the day that you hear this. No, today is the day of fulfillment. Another example is the proclamation of salvation that he gives to Zacchaeus in, Matt, in Luke uh, 19. Jesus tells Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And in verse 9 he says, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Luke speaks of salvation as a fulfilled event. And in the instance of Zacchaeus, that fulfillment had come that day. The point of all of this is to say that what is happening here with the birth of Jesus is not something that is to be waited waited for any longer. The Jews no longer had to wait for the fulfillment of the one who would come and bring peace. Today is the day. And just as today is the day for them, today is the day for us to know that we have a Savior who lives today. Which brings us to the next part of the phrase of this declaration of good news. A Savior has been born. Luke records that a Savior has been born to you. Now you may be surprised to hear this, but the title for Savior is extremely rare among the gospel writers. It's found once in John chapter 4 with the Samaritans after Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. Luke uses this title two other times in Acts, once with Peter's speech and once in Paul's speech. But in, in Luke's gospel, he only uses it once of Jesus. This title is clearly tied to the role of a redeemer or deliverer that has already been seen in Zechariah's prophecy. Like what was mentioned last week, this redemption, this deliverance, this salvation is both spiritual and political. The saving deliverer who will come, he will eliminate God's enemies 
And that saving deliverer will bring forgiveness of sins. He's called Savior primarily because this is what his work involves. What's significant about this title is that it's almost exclusively used in the Old Testament for God himself. Mary uses this title for God in her praise in chapter 1 because God is the one who delivers. God is the one who saves. God makes this declaration about himself. In Isaiah 43.3, he says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. To say that the one born is a Savior is loaded with this meaning, which is fleshed out more in the next couple of words. Christ the Lord. The angel follows the announcement of a Savior by saying, The Savior who is born to you, who is Christ the Lord. Now, Jesus is often referred to as the Christ. He is also often referred to as Lord. But just like Luke is a bit distinct using the title for Savior, he's also being somewhat unique here. Even though these terms are often used, they're very rarely used together. Only five times in the New Testament are, you, are they seen together, and, and only Luke has it in this way, in such a, a way that the most little reading is just Christ Lord. The first term, Christ, means anointed. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, but its primary association was with the king of Israel, who was the Lord's anointed. This is how David referred to King Saul, and it was because Saul was the Lord's anointed that he did not dare to attack him. The term gained more prominence in Psalm 2, where we see that God's king is his anointed king. It's from the Hebrew word Messiah, which became a technical term during the time between the Testaments before Jesus was born. It was the one who was anticipated who would finally come and bring salvation to usher in God's kingdom. This is who is born, the Christ. He is also the Lord, which indicates his rule, but also much more. Out of reverence and fear of misusing God's name, the Jews said Lord rather than pronounce the, the divine name Yahweh. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek during the intertestamental period, Lord was used. Lord was written instead of the name. And modern translations follow this today when you see Lord in all caps in your Old Testaments. The word and the title of Lord was not used exclusively of God, even among the Jews and Christians, but in those instances, it is clear that that's not a reference to God when it's not about him. Luke, through the words of this angel, however, is making an emphatic point here that this indeed is the Lord. Just like he did with the title Savior, he's saying that the, born, the one who was born is more than a mere human. He is the Lord. He is the God of Scripture. The promise of a birth that joins humanity to deity is also a recollection of Isaiah 9, which we read earlier, and I'm going to read it again. It promises a child. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here is a promise for a child to be born whose name is Mighty God. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. A key theme here, peace. No end to the peace. He will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This child is a ruler, and this ruler has a set of names that points clearly that this child is none other than God himself in the flesh. The last detail in Luke's proclamation and the angel's proclamation comes earlier in our English versions, but it is the last in the Greek text. I found it interesting, and it made me wonder, have you ever given news to someone in such a way that as you progressively give more information, you're building the tension and building the anticipation of something that's super exciting? Say, for example, I want to take my kids to Silverwood. I want them to be excited about it. So I don't just say, hey, kids, go grab your sunglasses and your towel. We're going to go to Silverwood. No, if I want to get them excited, if I want this to be something that the anticipation is just eating them up, I'm going to start with one little detail. Maybe even tell them that I've got some good news. I may say something like this. Hey, kids, I've got some fun news. Today... We are going to go play in some water, and we're going to ride some rides and eat some ice cream at Silverwood. Now, I hope you'll forgive a little sanctified imagination, but can you hear the angel? Hey there, you shepherds tending your flock. Don't be afraid. I know I just freaked you out popping in on you like this, but don't be afraid. I am bringing good news to you. It is great and joyful news. It's for everyone. And here it is. A child has been born today. You know what else? He's a savior. He is the Christ He is the Lord, and he was born in the city of David. This baby Savior Christ Lord is born in Bethlehem. The angel is not just giving them directions about where to find this baby, but he is furthering the claim. He's piling on step by step that the Messiah, who is both the expected Davidic king and eternal God, has come. I mentioned earlier that the promise of a child ties back to David because of God's promises to him in 2 Samuel 7. But David had many descendants who were born in all sorts of places. The significance of the location is not just that he's part of the Davidic line, but he is a fulfillment of the Messiah who is God in the flesh. Specifically, the angel is pointing to the last prophet of the Old Testament, Micah who records in Micah 5, 2, And you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judas, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Listen to this. Who is coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This last line, especially a reference to the ancient days, indicates that the Christ, the Savior, is the pre-existent Lord. This passage goes further in Micah. It doesn't just promise a ruler born uh, from Bethlehem. 
It continues saying, when she who is in labor has given birth and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to all the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. In this passage, the prophet declares that Israel's exile shall continue until this everlasting ruler is born. And at that time, the rest of Israel who have been exiled shall return. Now, this is still something that we're waiting for. The exile is still happening. But what we do see is that the step of fulfillment, a great step in fulfillment has come. A key connection to our passage this morning is in verse 5 of Micah. He shall be their peace. We'll come back to the statement in a moment. But before we do that, we must also note the sign that the shepherds are given. This glorious Lord is born in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. He has come in the most humble of circumstances. This is the one who was born so that we can rejoice in the God's peace. Second, we can rejoice in God's peace because it is of God's good pleasure. After this single angel gives this good news, the rest of the orchestra shows up, the host, to give praise to God. They attribute to him glory, the highest glory, the glory only God can receive because of what he will accomplish through this child, through the Savior. He will bring the long-sought-after peace, the shalom of God, with the people he has sovereignly chosen to show his mercy to. Verse 14 records the song of praise and the song of peace. It begins with glory to God in the highest. The glory of God is the purpose for all that God does. The angel shows this, and it's a theme that runs through our Bibles if we're paying attention to it. It's a theme that's celebrated by believers. And as historic confessions of faith have stated, it is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God displays his glory to Israel when he rescues them in a pillar of cloud and fire, magnificent display of his presence. He displays his glory as he clears away their enemies. He also displayed his glory when he visited judgment for their rebellion against him. And this is because his glory is tied to his name. It is tied to his reputation. And because we are so rebellious, because we fail in our own lives to bring him glory, God has worked in such a marvelous way to cause us to bring him glory through his salvation of us. God glorifies himself by making a people for his name who live in righteousness and holiness. Jesus says in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When we think of glory, though, especially the glory of God, we are often led to these high thoughts of his greatness and his awesomeness and his power and his might. And this is good and right, for in Revelation 4.11, we see the heavenly beings declare, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, 
For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But what we sometimes overlook is that God worked to bring himself glory through the humility he displayed through his Son. The Son of God was born in the midst of animals with no fanfare, a single line in Scripture, the time came for him to be born. His glory was veiled from mankind as he worked to bring himself great glory through the salvation of mankind. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus in Hebrews 1, 3, saying he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Isaiah 52 Verse 13, speaking of Christ, says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. But the exaltation that follows in Isaiah is nowhere near what anyone would expect. Isaiah continues in verse 14, As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is likely referring to the disfigurement that he faces in his flogging and crucifixion. But what about before that? What about before his crucifixion? Isaiah continues in Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should even look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. As the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, he came as a humble servant and lived in rejection. Nothing special in his life or appearance to draw attention to himself. He came to take our nature upon him, himself, our nature, a nature that sought to rob God of his glory. He did this because he made human beings in his own image. He did this to restore that image, to bring him the rightful glory that he deserves. Our image-bearing nature was designed to spread God's glory over all the earth as we exercised a righteous and holy dominion, yet we fell in Adam, rebelled against our creator, and failed to bring glory to God because we sought glory for ourselves. Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because we exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And we worshiped and served created things instead of the creator. When the son of God took on flesh, when he took our humanity upon himself, he worked to bring glory in an unexpected and surprising way. Though he could have exercised his glory through judging and condemning humanity, which he rightfully would have done, instead, in his love, he worked to resolve that unseemingly, the seemingly unresolvable problem of sin. God gets the glory because of what he does to solve this problem, which leads to the next part of verse 14. Peace. And on earth, peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. At the end of Zechariah's prophecy, which we heard about last week in Luke 179, he says that the sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
Last week we heard that that sunrise is referring to Christ himself as the visitor. This visitor brings light, and he guides our feet into the way of peace. Jesus makes possible a reconciled relationship between God and humanity. And he brings about that reconciled relationship. It brings peace to the earth. This is the purpose of the cross, of his incarnation, to reconcile sinners to God, to turn and in turn reconcile us to one another. This is what Jesus teaches us to pray for in Matthew 6. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' prayer here reflects both a concern for God's glory, a concern for God's will, and it continues to show a concern for peace. Because in this prayer, we seek peace with God as we seek and ask him to forgive us our sins, and we pursue peace in this prayer as we forgive one another. The key to both is Jesus himself. As we saw earlier in Micah 5.5, the promised ruler He shall be their peace. Now, Paul picks up on this idea in Ephesians 2. In verse 14, he starts off, he's saying, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. He reconciles us to one another. And he continues, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, and this is the reconciliation, technical difficulties, is it an urgent pursuit of peace? Christ came to bring peace. He has given you peace, but are you striving for it? Not only with God, but with one another. The last part of this praise has to do with who on earth enjoys this peace. If anyone grew up memorizing the King James Version, or if you have repeatedly watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special over the course of your life, this passage is read, and you would have had a different memory of how this verse ends. In the King James and the New King James, it says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, I don't want to walk you through the weeds of of Greek grammar, but I'll just point out that this change from goodwill toward men to among those with whom he is pleased, this is essentially, the short story of this is that a Greek manuscript discoveries showed that this word that is translated as goodwill, instead of being the subject of a clause, is now a describer for the men. Every modern translation has adopted this reading um, that I looked up, except for the New King James. So we're going to go with what's here. Yeah, the, the strong tradition is strong, but it, do, it does need to be addressed because it's a significant change. But for now, the ESV, for example, we read that peace on earth is among those with whom he is pleased. Or in the NIV, it says, to those on whom his favor rests. What this is saying, what both of these translations are communicating is the same. The idea, the, uh, the truth behind this is that God is sovereign in the salvation of his people. It is God who chooses to love. 
It is God who has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Now, there are many who object or buck against the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation as though it is a harsh doctrine. It is and ever will be a mystery, but harsh is never what it should be. Because if he did not choose to save some, Paul reminded us of this this morning when we went to our giving, that we, none of us, deserve mercy. If God did not choose to save some, none would be saved. If he did not work to bring peace, there would be no peace. Now, it is also true that everyone, every, everyone is people. We have our own emotion, intellect, and will. Every one of us must repent. We must all choose to take up our cross and follow Christ. We must all seek the Lord so that he may be found. But this is only one side. This is only the human side of salvation. The other side, the divine side, shows that God determines all things and that he initiates and he fulfills the work of salvation. And then rather than object to this doctrine, the doctrine of election and predestination, we must remember that this is part of the message of praise of the angels who brought a message of good news of great joy. And why should it not be good news? It is clear from both the scriptures and our own experiences that we are corrupted by sin in every aspect of our lives. For those of us who came to faith later in life, we can remember how we walked in the counsel of the wicked. We can remember how we chose not to come to Christ to have life. We were enemies of God, willing enemies, willingly ignorant, willing rebels against his rule. Even those of us who lived morally, who had lives full of good deeds perhaps for others, when faced with the command to repent in our pride and arrogance, we felt that this was a call for somebody whose life was a wreck. Instead, we were lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, ungrateful, unholy, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We had set up God, if we believed in one, in our own image, defining him and his attributes as we saw fit. We trusted in our own righteousness, and we did not submit to God's righteousness. What this leads us to is put succinctly in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were. This is who the God who became flesh came for. These are the people that God chose to put his good pleasure on. Paul continues in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. We were enemies. God loved us. We were rescued. We did not save ourselves. God decided because of his love that he would save to give us peace with him. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were adopted. We were given redemption in Christ. We were given forgiveness of our trespasses. We were given an inheritance. Again, this is all language from Ephesians, which oozes God's sovereignty in our salvation. And why does he speak this way? Not for us, not for our glory, but for his. It is said again and again in Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glory. Why? Because God lavished his grace on us according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To the praise of his glory. Glory to God in the highest. There is no other way to react to this news but rejoicing with great joy. It is because of God's good pleasure that we can rejoice in his peace, and it is because of the one who was born. We react with great joy, but how do we respond in our lives? The narrative here shows us five distinct responses of people to the good news of great joy. The first is the shepherds in their initial response. In Luke 2.15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, the, the shepherds, who were low in status, which is ironic, but in spite of their lowly status, especially since they're part of a rejected social class, they sought out to find the baby who was born. Verse 15 in the ESV is a little under-translated. There is an urgency in the speech that the NASB, the New American Standard, portrays well. It says, let us go straight to Bethlehem then. Either way, though, in verse 16, we see that they went with haste to Bethlehem and found Mary and Joseph and the baby. What I'm saying now, what I'm about to say, is directly primary, directed primarily to anyone here who may not be turning to Christ because of doubts or skepticism. The shepherds received news that they had never heard before. But what they heard was news of a salvation. They heard about one who would come. The one promised who would be a savior. And they made haste to find out if what they heard was true. They were given a sign to see if what they were told was true. And I want you to know that the Christian message is of salvation in Christ Jesus is a, a verifiable message. If you're struggling with doubts, take an honest and diligent search, and you will see that his word is a true word. And whether you have skeptical doubts or not, I urge you to not delay. Seek out Christ and embrace his mercy and his grace by entrusting yourself to his saving work to reconcile you to God. The second response we see here is what they do when they arrive. And what follows is fascinating. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So here we have Mary, who has been told similar things by an angel. 
We have Joseph, who we learn from Matthew, was also given revelation about the child. And here come these shepherds who tell their story. I think the implication for us in response to all of this good news of great joy is that we should be a people who speak of all that has been made known to us. Because we have this message. We have the scriptures. We should be telling the wonderful works of the Lord and not just to unbelievers for evangelism. We should be recounting these things to one another, rehearsing these truths in our home and in our church. The third response we see is that all who heard it wondered. What does it mean to wonder? I wonder what it means to wonder. That's, that's not it. To wonder is to be amazed, to admire, to be in awe. Is this how we re- respond to what is revealed in Scripture? There's a song, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us sing our Savior's praise. He has crushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. The wonder is to see how justice and mercy meet. And justice is satisfied this message of peace with this baby, there was still mystery for them, but we know the answer now is that he died to take away sin, that we would be enjoying God's peace. Fourth, we see that Mary pondered. She treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. This is something that's probably lost on many of us in our generation, the the, the art of Christian meditation, I was recently reading of the impact that the internet and electronic devices has had on our ability to concentrate. And this is more than an issue of self-control, apparently, because our brains have a level of what's called plasticity that essentially learns how to learn based on how it has learned. How we may have learned in the past can be reprogrammed in a sense, mainly through long uh, and concentrated periods of repetitive action. So in the past, we may have spent long periods reading and studying with nothing but a book on our desk, but that's been changed with electronic devices that distract us with innumerable notifications and options. Now, I'm not saying that people didn't get distracted before, but we have come to an age that is built to distract, and we have become accustomed to it. The result is that many of us have lost our ability to concentrate and meditate. We've lost the ability to ponder. Now, we can hardly escape from our electronic environment. So instead, I just want to encourage you to find ways to limit distractions and set times to be purposeful to ponder God in his word. Because pondering the word of the Lord is what keeps us in communion with him, to understand who he is It helps us to see and believe the promises as God works through his spirit and his word uh, to, to just think about the things that he has revealed and the impact that it has for us. Lastly, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. Just like the wonder of those who heard their report, Just like the angels who cried out, glory to God in the highest, these shepherds took up their own praise to the glory of God. They had learned of the peace of God, and they had a preview of the one who would bring it. They understood that God was at work, and that he was making good on his promises. 
They probably didn't understand, like I said, how it was going to be carried out, but they believed and they worshipped. So to bring it all together, God has sent his son so that you may rejoice in his praise or in his peace to the glory of his name. We're able to rejoice in this good news of great joy because of who God is, because of who the Son is and what he has done. And we're also able to rejoice in this good news because God has brought us peace with himself to those of us whom he has called. Now, in this time of Advent, it's important to remember that so far this morning, we've been looking back at what God has already done. We've set our attention on when the Son took on flesh to be the Savior. But we must also remember that he is coming again. He has kept his promises in the past, and he will bring them to their fulfillment. There will be a day called today, a day of the Lord that is coming, that will be a good day for us. It will be a day of good news, of great joy, who are eagerly awaiting his Son from heaven. At that time, we will experience the fulfillment of his peace and give him unfettered glory in joyful noise. We know that Christ has come, and we know that Christ is coming. And he will bring us peace, and it will be for the greatest joy. Let's pray. Father, we give you great glory, great praise, because you have done what no one else could do. You have undone what we have done in bringing hostility between you and ourselves. We thank you for the work that you've done to send your son, that you, our triune God, in the person of the son, would take on flesh to take the punishment that is due to humanity and to live in righteousness that you would give your righteousness to us. We thank you for this reminder. And Luke, we pray that your word, that the, the message of your coming would not become something that we no longer wonder at, something that we no longer ponder. Fill us with the joy of your salvation and help us to repent of anything that keeps us from enjoying that because you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. You have proven that to us in sending the son to die for us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.